Jews and Christians were, at one time, far more common in countries like Morocco, Tunisia, and Syria. But over the last few decades, many religious minorities have departed for Europe, Israel, and the United States. America Abroad's Joseph Brody gives us a short history of how the Middle East has, gradually, become less religiously diverse. This haunting sound comes from the Middle East, but it's neither Arabic nor Islamic. It's church music from the Copts of Egypt, the oldest Christian community in the world. The Middle East was once, like many other great imperial areas, a great mass of ethnicities, languages, religions. It had large numbers of Christians and Jews. It had large numbers uh, of different uh, Muslim ethnic groups. Norman Stillman is a history professor at the University of Oklahoma and author of The Jews of Arab Lands. How is it that a world that was so multi-ethnic 80 years ago has become basically so monolithic? Both the Jews and the Christians in the Middle East are, in a sense, the Native Americans of the Middle East. Frank Salema is a Near Eastern Studies professor at Boston College and author of Language, Memory, and Identity in the Middle East, The Case for Lebanon. If we want to speak in terms of precedence, they were the people who were there first before there were any Arabs in the region. And we know that the Arabs began pouring into the Near East and the Eastern Mediterranean and later North Africa beginning in the 7th century. But prior to that, if we want to go into terms like indigenous and say the indigenous inhabitants of the Middle East were uh, Christians and Jews. In the name of Allah, the merciful, the beneficent. This is a document from Muhammad, the unlettered prophet. What applies to Bani Auf shall also apply to the Jews of Banu Najjar. This Saudi Muslim cleric is reading from a 7th century document called Sahifat al-Medina, the Constitution of Medina, in which the Prophet Muhammad lays the groundwork for a new relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims to govern an expanding Islamic empire. A key term in the document, later expounded in other Islamic texts, is protection. This document will not provide protection for anyone sinful or unjust. Allah provides protection for those who are good and pious. The set of laws, the Vimma laws, has been described by scholars as a system of protection. It regulated the existence of the Dhimmi people, the uh, Jews and Christians who came to fall under the rule of Islam. It was a system of unequal relationships whereby the Dhimmi people were relegated to uh, certain professions, certain areas within the domains of Islam. It was also a system of taxation where Christians and Jews paid a special uh, poll tax that essentially uh, was meant to allow them to remain on their lands. History professor Norman Stillman. But being even second-class subjects is far better than being no subject at all. And as long as a certain hierarchy was maintained, they had a place in society that in fact was far better than outsiders had in Europe up until modern times. The last Muslim empire was the Ottoman Empire, which ruled from Istanbul for centuries. Some Ottoman rulers applied the laws of the Dhimma more stringently than others. But by the dawn of the 20th century, the empire's Dhimmi had noticed that there could be other ways of living through the institutions and ideals of Europe. Minorities began to look outside the Islamic world with the ascendance of the West. 
They were the first ones to seek modern educations. They were the first ones to learn foreign languages. And they also served as intermediaries between the outside forces that were uh, penetrating their world. Some Christians and Jews moved to Europe. Others served European colonial powers such as France and Britain as they now took control of former Ottoman provinces like Syria and Iraq. Others yet, notably Christians, tried to help import a new form of political thought to the Middle East, nationalism. Frank Salema. They began advocating the idea that rather than us being Muslims, Jews, and Christians, we were all a single people, we were all Arab people. We're all users of the Arabic language, or back then they said we're all Arabic speakers, therefore we are all Arabs. And that's the idea that took flight, if you will, beginning in the 1930s and gave rise to this concept of the Arab world. Professor Norman Stillman. Unfortunately, nationalism very often has a very bad effect on minorities. Unrest in Egypt reached its peak with a military coup in which King Farouk was ousted and went into exile with his wife and infant son. In 1952, Arab nationalism achieved a major victory that attracted international attention, such as this American newsreel, which was seen across the United States. Thus ended a reign in the Middle East, now one of the trouble spots of the world. Egyptian Coptic Christian George Kaldas came of age as nationalists led by Gamal Abdel Nasser took control of the country. I was born in Alexandria, which was a big mixture of many nationalities. From 1952, the Egyptian revolution started little by little, pitting off all the foreigners first. Two countries in the region, Israel and Lebanon, developed as havens for religious minorities, particularly Jews and Christians, in the face of Arab nationalism. Greater Lebanon was an entity that would be a homeland for Middle Eastern Christians and others if they wished to be part of that configuration. The state of Israel instigated the exodus of Palestinian Arabs out of Israel into neighboring Arab-defined countries. But traditional scholarship does not tell us also of the influx of Jews of Arab lands into Israel. Both uh, these states were viewed by the surrounding Muslim-majority states or uh, Arab-majority states as anomalies that needed to be removed from the midst. The polarization between Maronite Christian and Jewish nationalists on the one hand and Arab nationalists on the other spurred a civil war in Lebanon and a series of wars between Israel and several Arab states. These wars caused refugees, many of them religious minorities, to spill out of Arab countries into Israel, Lebanon, and beyond to Europe and the Americas. Now, only a few decades later, a new wave of revolutions is largely displacing the ideology of Arab nationalism with a new take on governance based once more on traditional Islamic principles. What will it bring to the remnants of the region's religious minorities? Though over a dozen Coptic churches in Egypt have been firebombed in recent months, George Kaldas hopes for the best. Any democracy, when it starts, starts always violently. So this could not be taken to be against anybody or any revolution. But Frank Salema, taking the long view, sees an unmistakable trend.
there has been, historically speaking, a squeezing out process beginning in the 7th century, squeezing out of minorities out of the Middle East. And for a while, this squeezing out has stopped in places like Lebanon and Israel. But it seems that this squeezing out process has been reactuated and Christian communities have begun a more severe exodus in terms of numbers. Up until 1952, there were a number of Coptic parishes in the United States, two, three parishes. Today, they number in the hundreds. And the same applies in Europe, in Canada, in in South America, and so forth. In light of new pressures on parishes in the Middle East and the people who pray in them, it's not easy to see this outflow letting up. But global concern can be valuable in supporting the rights of Middle Eastern minorities, as well as highlighting the value of diversity in the ancient heartlands of all three monotheistic faiths. For America Abroad, I'm Joseph Browdy. I'm Catherine Lanfer, and you're listening to Religious Minorities in the Middle East on America Abroad. Tell us what you think about what you're hearing. Send us a tweet at America underscore abroad.